May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. The Gospel reading for today begins with the events that took place on the evening of the day of the resurrection. Women had been to the tomb early in the morning and had come back with reports of seeing angels that told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. Some said they even encountered Jesus. But as Luke says, however, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, and in the Gospel of John it adds that John also ran to the tomb, and bending over, Peter saw only the linen, strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. That evening, the disciples were gathered together in the locked room. They were disturbed. They were confused. They were a fearful community. The events of the past week had overwhelmed them, and their brains and bodies were on emotional overload. The Bible says they were full of fear, and the word that is used is the Greek word phobon, from which we get the Greek word, we get the English word phobia. And phobia is an irrational and unthinking fear, emotional terror. The disciples were afraid of their, of everything. They were sh- just didn't know what was going on. They could well have hidden under the beds if there had been beds there. Their whole world had been turned upside down. They had left their families. They'd left their jobs their livelihoods, to follow this charismatic healer and preacher. And now, as far as they could see, this glorious revolution had come to a screeching halt. The wheels had come off the kingdom of God. The movement had collapsed. It was all in disarray. But then Jesus, the risen Christ, came into the locked room, And he brought them things that they needed to recover from their fright and their confusion. His first words to them were, peace be with you. Now, peace has a lot of different meanings. It means completeness, welfare, health, everything as it it should be. That's the meaning of shalom. It doesn't mean just stop fighting. It means things go back to a way that is harmonious. And in Greek, peace is, the word is irene, which means harmonized relationships between God and humanity. So Jesus comes into this place where it is the most cacophonous spiritual sound of fear and anxiety and confusion is the most out of tune, out of tune, him being sung, not literally, but emotionally. 
And he comes to bring them the peace that will harmonize that. A mysterious peace that's not dependent on circumstances. It's not dependent on what's going on in our lives, our job, our family, our health, anything, how much money we have. It, Paul calls it the peace that passes all understanding. And it's a gift to our hearts and our spirits from God. And this peace is the peace that is at the core of our worship. You know, we used to pass the peace all the time. We ought to get back to that in some form. Every, you know, I, I pre, I've been preaching at a lot of different churches lately, and mostly we're waivers, you know. But, uh, but that's important. The path of peace, to extend that, that sense of unity and relationship with one another. It is not just a mere friendly hello. It is a statement of we are together in Christ. And after Jesus had calmed them down, and giving them peace, he gave them a purpose. I guess they, some of them thought, well, okay, everything's over now. First they probably thought it was, oh, it's over in a bad way on Good Friday. And now they're thinking, oh, okay, it's complete. Jesus is raised. Okay, everything's done. And he says, oh, no, we're just beginning. Even as I have been sent to you, I am sending you. And then he breathed the Holy Spirit on them, which is probably a good thing because they were all still probably thinking, uh, I don't think I know. Um, you want us to what? There's people out there that want to uh, kill us. There's, uh, mm, I don't know, Jesus, but the Holy Spirit gave them the power. It enabled them. It wasn't the first time, it wasn't the only time they were going to receive the Holy Spirit because we all know about Pentecost, which will be coming up in a few weeks. I kind of think of this as the first booster. Pentecost was the out-of-this-world booster shot. But he said, I am sending you, and gave them the gift of the Spirit that would enable them to take on that mission. But they didn't have to go very far to begin their work. For whatever reason, we do not know. Thomas was not there at the time when Jesus appeared to them. And when he returned, they excitedly told him about Jesus' appearance. And again, for whatever reason, we really don't know whether he'd been accosted on this street, whether he was just so deep in, deep in grief he couldn't really hear them. Could have been any number of things. His response was not to say, oh, wonderful, but to say, I can't believe that until I put my hand in his side and touch the wounds on his hands. And for this, he got the nickname over the centuries of Doubting Thomas. 
Now, this is a little side note, but I think that's a little unfair to Thomas. A few weeks ago, we heard the story of Lazarus's death. And you recall that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he didn't go right away. And, but then a few days later, he decided he would go back to Bethany. And many of the disciples, he was away from Bethany because there were people who were plotting against him. And so a lot of his disciples said, you really want to go back? You sure you should go back there, Jesus? You know they're plotting against you. This maybe, you know, are you? But Thomas said, let's go. Basically, he said, let's go and let's die with him. If he's got to go, let's go too. And if he dies, we'll die too. Now that is not a person of total doubt. That's a statement of pretty strong commitment. But the truth is, most of us have moments of doubt or times when our knees get wobbly and our butter, we get butterflies in our stomach and we go, no, I can't do this. This is too much. I just can't handle this right now. But let's get back to the story. What happens next? What happened after this encounter with, with uh, when Thomas came back and the apostles told them they'd seen Jesus? It just skips ahead. How far does it skip ahead? Got to listen to Arnie when he reads this stuff. A week. It's a week later when the story picks up again. And Thomas, again, they're in the upper room, they've got the doors locked, and Thomas is with them this time. And then Thomas, when Jesus appears, Jesus is gracious enough. He doesn't scold Thomas, he doesn't say, what was wrong with you last week? He says, here, this will help you. Put your hand in my side. Touch the wounds on my hands. What do you think happened in that week in between? What was going on? We, don't, we aren't told, so we have to use our imaginations. The only clue that can give us some idea about it is that Thomas was there with the other others who had seen Jesus. What does that tell you about what was going on among that group of people? It, tell, it says to me that the rest of the people the apostles and any of the women were there when, when Jesus appeared in that upper room the first time were perfectly or were reasonably comfortable with Thomas not being there yet, spiritually. 
he hadn't had the same experience they had. And they probably remembered how some of them had reacted uh, before the crucifixion, during the crucifixion, and even after the resurrection. Let's see. At some point, we have James and John fighting about who gets to sit next to Jesus in heaven. Peter's telling Jesus, when Jesus predicts his death, Peter's telling, oh, no, Lord, that can't happen. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. You're, you're, you know. And when the women come back from the tomb, it says in the Gospels, and tell the apostles and the others who are there, he's risen, the angels told us we've seen him. They thought they were talking nonsense. So they had reason to not be too judgmental of Thomas. And so they weren't. Apparently they didn't argue with him, tell him he was wrong, tell him that they were right. And Thomas felt comfortable enough in the midst of those people who had had this experience that he hadn't had that he stayed with them anyway. There was something binding them together that was greater than just that particular experience. They were community. Eventually, Thomas would have the same experience. But he hadn't had it yet but they stayed together. Those who had seen Jesus provided companionship and hospitality to Thomas who had not yet seen Jesus. How many of you have heard of Henry Nowen? He was a, uh, he's now deceased, he was a a priest who was a writer and a professor at various colleges. He wrote a lot on spirituality. I had the very good fortune when I was in seminary. Uh, he was speaking in the Twin Cities. He was speaking in the morning and then in the afternoon. And so I had the good fortune of spending the entire day listening to him. He was marvelous. In one of his books, he writes this about hospitality. Hospitality is not to change people. It's not to make, you know, come in and be just like us. Hospitality is to offer them a space where change can take place. It's not forced. It's not by our design, be like us. It's become more of who you are as God's person. And he also says, listening is a form of spiritual hospitality by which you invite strangers to become friends, to get to know their inner selves more fully, and even to dare to be silent with you. We don't change other people's relationship with God. We make space for them to feel safe enough to change. Sometimes, 
young people, and I was one once, and you know, I still can sort of remember it, that sometimes young people are afraid to approach their parents or their grandparents or their teachers when they've made a mistake, when they've messed something up, because they're afraid that they're going to get yelled at, scolded, told off, whatever, but they won't really be helped in understanding why they made that mistake and how they cannot make it again. You know, it's just a bad. Uh, but that really doesn't provide for a great deal of growth. Now, there are often consequences that must be dealt with, but they can be dealt with much more effectively if there is some honest listening and guidance. Paul writes in, in uh, 2 Corinthians that I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who brings forth the growth. We create the space for the growth. And then God will bring it forth. And Jesus did that, just that for Thomas, inviting him not to do just what he's, inviting him to do just what he had said he needs to do, touch Jesus' wounds. And having done that, Thomas fell into deep worship. Now Jesus said as after that, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have seen and yet have, have not seen and yet have come to believe. And blessed in this sense doesn't mean holy. It means happy. Having such a straightforward faith, an easy faith, is wonderful. When you believe and you know it and it's firm in you. But a lot of people I know who have that kind of faith have acquired it by, going, by having that faith tested. As it said in First Peter, by having their faith refined by times of various trials. One thing I love about the United Church of Christ is that we are a denomination who understands ourselves to be based on covenant. Covenant is another way of saying relationship. And not, we're not based on a creed. That means we understand ourselves to be bound together in relationship with God and one another by a covenant. What binds us together is not a set of, a list set of things that we must believe. Belonging comes through relationship and not agreeing with everything in a creed or somebody else's understanding about how scripture should be understood. We are a denomination where faith is certainly honored, but so are questions and doubts. Now, I've been a pastor a long time. At least my hair tells me that. Uh, and the thing that I've noticed is that 
in most churches. Not everybody is at the same stage in their faith life. Not everybody's in the same place. And it's important that we honor that. Whether it's the, faith, the stage of faith of our young people, the very simple faith, the questioning faith of adolescence, the faith that the and doubts and questions that, that come for all of us at various times in our lives as we go through difficulties and hardships. We wonder. And that's all right. We have questions, and that's all right. Some of the greatest saints have had wonders and questions. Saint John of the Cross, a spiritual writer, wrote extensively about what he called his dark night of the soul. where I think he related to Jesus crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it didn't last forever. We all go through that. I get, uh, I subscribe on the, on the internet to something called Medium, and it's people who write and, and blog about all kinds of different topics. Some of them are pretty lightweight. Some of them are even comedic. Um, some of them are very thoughtful and on quite serious topics. But one thing I find over and over and over again, and it really makes me sad, I have to say this, it makes me very sad because I come across all these people who grew up in churches where it was very creedal, you must believe this, you must accept this, you must accept this, that they couldn't, they, in honesty, couldn't. And they have left the church, and they blog about all the reasons they've left the church. You know, or they write about all those reasons. And some of them are actually, I think, fairly valid. But what makes me sad is that I don't think they've ever been exposed to or have found a congregation where you can have questions, where you don't have to all be alike and you don't have to participate in group think. I'm, think, I'm seriously thinking about writing an article about that and submitting it to see if it will get printed because it, it just makes me sad that they have one vision of what a church can be, and it was pretty miserable. Carl Jung, who is a psychologist and who is very interested in spiritual life, wrote this, loneliness does not come from having no people about one, but from being unable to communicate the things that seem important to oneself or from holding certain views which others find inadmissible. I celebrate this congregation and I celebrate the United Church of Christ and its spirit of letting each person take their faith, faith journey as it comes to them, supported, encouraged by one another, but each 
honestly in their own time and at their own pace. And that, Jesus, that, that same Jesus who sent, who told the disciples, just as I've been sent, now I send you, and they started apparently with Thomas, and we may start with one another in encouraging one another. We are not meant to stop that welcoming, that encouraging, that listening when we go out the doors. Because I know there are a lot of people who would really like to find a place where they feel accepted and they can explore their faith without being judged or pushed or whatever it is that makes them want to run out the door and write an article about how awful church is. I'd love to have them walk out the door and write an article about how grace-filled church can be. Amen. Let's join in singing our hymn.